This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got another great guest for you today. He's a mobile home and RV broker. He owns and operates mobile home parks. He's developing an RV park. So we got a jack of all trades. He also does some third-party management from time to time. So really excited to have our guest here. My friend, please help me welcome Enon Winkler. Enon, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks, Ferd. I appreciate it. So <laughs> thanks for the introduction, man. That's great. Um, how's things going with you? Hey, all is well. It, it snowed here in beautiful Kansas City. So for our, our listeners, it's November 15th as we record this. So we're going to talk, I know, later here about market conditions so they get a better, better feel for this time and time of our life. But all is well here. Um, tell us about yourself, man. I know you, but for our guests that may not, give us a little more of your background, how you got in the space. Yeah, I appreciate it. So I started out on Wall Street and that was great. It was the most amazing job out of college that anyone could ever have. But, you know, quickly, three to four years into it, I realized there wasn't a lot of growth. So I really struggled with that. The money was great. Um, the atmosphere was kind of like a boiler room. But um, I really wanted to grow. That was important to me. So I started looking around into real estate and what I wanted to do. And I read a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that really kind of let me understand that each property out there is owned by someone. I never really thought of it. So once I realized that and they produce cash flow and, and, you know, it's, it's having your money work for your money. I just thought of the world differently. So I wanted to get into real estate and I started researching, you know, what do I get into? And ultimately I ended up choosing to go into multifamily, which was a great decision. Um, I was a multifamily broker for a large brokerage firm out of Orlando and I crushed it. So from 2004, when I started to, I would say 2009 ish before the world fell apart, you know, I did probably right at a billion dollars in apartment sales and was one of the top guys in central Florida. And it was great. In 2009, you know, I kind of retired to be honest with you. I started a, I didn't start, I, I worked on a company that me and some of my buddies started called red carpet Monday. So I focused on growing that. That was, that's an internet company that we call it bizertainment. It's online and offline social media. And it was similar to MySpace at the time when it started, but we also incorporated events. So it's super cool. We had a great following. It's it's still a great event till this day. But when I, I left the brokerage world and was trying to figure out what to do next because there wasn't anything trading, I um I grew that from Orlando to Tampa, Atlanta, Dallas. We partnered with Mark Cuban in Dallas, which was pretty cool and, and his people. And um we actually had through Red Carpet Monday, we had a shark tank viewing in Orlando downtown where Mark Cuban and Damon came. So it's Super cool, super exciting business to be a part of. And then um, I started getting you know antsy to get back in real estate. And in 2011, you know, I was out there looking for something to buy because you know most brokers at some point in their life want to buy and own properties. And so in 2011, I bought my first mobile home park in Kissimmee, Florida. It was a 93 space, 55 and older mobile home park, and I bought it and I ran it and I had to go figure it out. So um, that's what started it all with the mobile home park space. It was really foreign to me though at that time. All I thought was apartments. And through that process, I um, 
ended up buying four more parts in, in Georgia through a 15 property portfolio in which different guys that I work with a lot, we all bought different tranches and I took the Georgia stuff and that was 485 lots, something like that. And out of the 485, I'll give an example, the largest park was 219 lots. There were approximately 180 homes and 160 of them were vacant dilapidated. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, um, you he know. became a remodeler. Kind of, yeah, that kind of went through the other parts. Well, we bought it at a price that we were pretty certain we weren't going to go wrong, but we had a lot of work to do. So, you know, I would say from 2013 to 2015, I really got a first-class education on how to go in and, you know, renovate a park. I mean, I, we were, I renovated, I think, not personally, but I had crews, renovate somewhere in the neighborhood through all the parks, about 140 homes over two years. Wow. So um, it was in Albany, Georgia. And that, at the time, um, you know, everything was struggling, but that market was struggling. It's, you know, it was just a difficult market. But we exited. We made great money. And then from there, um, I started to get into mobile home park brokerage. You know, I started thinking, wow, let me go build a team like I built in the past and focus on the brokerage space and, you know, continuing to work to buy a deal or two a year. And that's what I did. I, you know, I started a multifamily and and mobile home park team, and um, we did extremely well. We, um, you know, I bought another deal and got was it 2016 and and the villages and those 127 spaces, and then um, and that was on the market for two years. I just saw the potential and bought it, and then um, bought another park in Ocala, bought another park in Bellevue. And then I ended up partnering on a park in Arcadia with some operators that um, were really struggling. Um, they were struggling. They wanted to sell it. Um, performance was really bad. They had issues with the health department. They just had tons of issues. So the the probability of it selling was super slim. And they knew that. And they just said, hey, would you consider partnering with us? I'm like, yeah, I was waiting for you to ask. <laughs> so we ended up partnering on that deal a year and a half ago. And we got an offer now if it closes that you know, is is right over double what we partnered at. So we turned that thing around. We we went from about thirty three thousand dollars in bad debt over six months to virtually zero. And oh, what, I'm curious second, on that. What did you What did you do on that? Because that's 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 pretty impressive, right? Yeah. So well, and and let me say there's a there's there's more to the story. So part of it was is we just looked at who was late, why, and how that worked. And a lot of them were really getting dinged with high fees month after month. But the goal when we took over was, let's get this stabilized. Let's keep the people that can stay, the people that can stay, you know, we'll, we'll get them out. And, um, you know, ultimately we ended up settling on some of the debt. Um, some of the debt we got paid in full, but you know, if someone had a $6,000 balance and that balance had been accumulating with late fees for a couple of years, you know, we just went to them and said, hey, you know, we have tax season coming up here. We'll settle that debt for 1500 bucks. And, you know, you're current, you've been current, stay current. And it worked out well. I mean, it just, you know, literally we just, you know, the the, the residents, which are the, the most important piece of any park, they were very thankful. They were like, you know, these guys came in, they partnered, they cleaned up the park, you know, they put up new fencing, they're cleaning the homes, we redid the clubhouse. Um, we negotiated with them. We worked with them. And ultimately, you know, month after month, we probably had an average on right at 100 spaces, zero to maybe two that were even delinquent by the 15th. 
So it, it worked out well. And um, and then, you know, then we started property managing another park of theirs in, in the northern United States, same issues. We turned that around and um, we were just managing that park. We turned that around and sold it and we just closed on it for them and absolutely crushed it for them. I mean, turned around the vacancy, turned around the bad debt, fixed the down homes. You know, we just went in there and put our arms around it and took care of it. So it was exciting. But um, yeah, I mean, so Other Street is, Other Street's my brand. It's it's my brand of companies. And, you know, the way Other Street was was formed was I worked on Wall Street out of college. And then I worked went to work for Main Street, which is more of the corporate larger brokerage firms. And what I realized is I didn't like either of them that much. Um, I, I feel like I'm, I'm not a, a guy that you can put in a box. I like to think outside the box. And um, so, you know, other streets, the saying is we're not Main Street, we're not Wall Street, we're the other street. So it allows my, you know, I empower my guys to be entrepreneurial, to do what it takes to go the extra mile and not say you can't do this, you can't do that. You know, it's all about figuring things out and, keep, and creating a team culture where, you know, everyone really thrives on getting stuff done and learning. So it's it's been super exciting. Um so overall, Other Street as a brokerage firm, I've done somewhere in the neighborhood of $2.6, $2.7 billion. Um, I would say about a billion or so is apartments, billion two, and then the rest has been mobile home park and RV. Um, so one, one brand of my company is Other Street Advisors, and that's the advisory and the brokerage firm. Um, currently, we pretty much represent Texas North and then East. We have a guy in Colorado now that covers kind of Colorado down to Texas, so we get more west. And then we have six other guys that cover the United States, Texas, North, and then East on our team. And, you know, we've had a phenomenal year. We've had a phenomenal couple years. And, um, you know, we look forward to, you know, having more good years, but I, we'll get into it later. I do see a little bit of a slowdown coming, if we can talk about. And then the other side of my firm is the property management side. We just are vertically integrated with the properties that we own. And, from there, we've been asked to manage, third-party manage a bunch of properties, and we've just selectively kind of pick and chosen which ones we wanted to manage because, you know, it takes a lot of bandwidth to manage properties, and, you know, we didn't want to get too far out of our radius. So um, we also manage our properties and do third-party management, and the third part is more of a venture, a venture. It's called Other Street Ventures, and that's our real estate and money-raising arms for startups and partnerships. And, you know, on the on the money raising side for companies, we've invested in a company called Tenant Loop, which sold the Buildium. We invested in an RV company called Rover Pass, a company called Air Health, Red Carpet Monday, MedSpeaks, TSO Life, Coldstone Creamery. So, you know, it's our it's our investing arm for businesses and six mobile home parks and currently working on an RV park and marina in Leesburg, Florida on Lake Griffin. So, um, you know, as a company, we're just, I would just say we're entrepreneurial and a little rebellious and you know we like to we like to get out there and make things happen that's great man that's, a, that's an interesting story i appreciate you sharing it um yeah yeah you you mentioned too i mean as we're sitting here in mid-november 2022 what's the market looking like i mean i'm seeing on my end you know obviously like everybody else interest rates are up so noi is not just going up automatically so if interest rates are up then debt coverage ratios are constraining the amount of loan to value, which is constraining yield, which is constraining price, or at least price in the mind of the buyer. I'm not seeing a ton of transaction volume right now because sellers are not yet caving on price. So, I mean, I, we're still seeing regular volume, but it was like 
you know, six months ago was, okay, this is listed for 2 million. It's going to sell for two point something. Now it's like 2 million. I'm at 1.5. What's going on here? And then we can't get it done at 1.8 even. So it feels like there's a lot of, I've been making offers still. And I'm like, I'm not even close on some of these. And it's like, this it's kind of a waste of time. It almost feels like waiting for the market to adjust. Um, is that what you're seeing? And, or, you know, what else is going on in the marketplace? You know, you're, you're touching a lot of different markets than I am. I'm seeing some seller finance. I'm, I saw yesterday, has got a guy doing a ground lease and we got guys doing, you know, still trying to do wholesales and double close, but I feel like the wholesale is harder. Um, you keep hearing about LPs are, you know, going to have to take lower yield. Um, I don't know that they're willing to. I feel like LPs, limited partners, are looking harder at the numbers and questioning the assumptions of the syndicators because I feel like the syndicators, in order to get this, derive the same yield the LPs have become accustomed to, there's this natural temptation to fudge the numbers and, you know, you know, over, you know, overproduce on, or, you know, overestimate yield by, you know, in massive rent increases or not tracking expenses. Or I looked at a deal the other day and, you know, the, the guy thought we'd have to fill 50 houses in like two years in a very rough park. Like that's a lot of houses in a very rough park in a tertiary market. I would say that's more like five a year, not 25 a year. And maybe I can get it done 10 a year but I don't really want to put my money on 25 a year in that, in that particular sub market. What, what are you seeing, Enon? Yeah. So let's, let's, let me kind of rehash some of the stuff you talked about, because you made a lot of good points and I'll, I'll start with the last comment that you made. I mean, the reality is, is we can financially engineer any return we want. Right. <laughs> I mean, you can, I mean, we can, we can, say cap rates in five years are going to be 100 basis points higher or 50 basis points higher, and we can financially engineer returns. And then, you know, we can also say that, you know, we can fill 25 homes a year when the reality is it may be 15 and our, our rent increases are going to be 8%. In reality, it could be five. So financial engineering is something that um, any of us can do to, to, to make the numbers look good. And I, I think that, you know, you're in the nail on the head you know, making sure that you stay fundamentally sound in how you're looking at things and what you're doing is extremely important because, you know, we all have a reputation out there of doing things and doing things right, and doing things well. So we don't want to get into a situation where, you know, we're we're pushing values or pushing whatever we're pushing within with respect to the financial model to make it look like we're going to hit returns we know we're never going to hit because we get an acquisition fee. Totally wrong, totally Totally bad business practice, but a lot of people out there, that's how they make their money. So it is what it is. But I mean, I hear you on that, you know, and with respect to the market, keep making offers. I know that you'll have a lot of, um, you know, guys on the show that are, are looking to buy or first time buyers. And listen, that's extremely important from the broker standpoint and just in general, because you want to keep your name out there. You want to keep your hand on the pulse. If you like the product, if you make an offer, it may come back to you. If you don't make an offer, it's not coming back to you. So, and and more offers you make, the more engaged you get with, you know, the brokers, the owners, wholesalers, whoever you're working with. So stay engaged. It's a great business. Um, and then one other thing is real estate's a laggard. You know what I mean? Like we're going to see the real effects of the interest rates rising. We're starting to see it now, but we're really going to start to see it, in my opinion, 
in March and April as the numbers start to come in because it's a laggard. It takes time. It takes time for people to adjust. Um, so because real estate's a laggard, we are seeing it a lot. I'm seeing it across the board. Um, I'll give you an example. So out of every we'll call it mid-size buyers, um, one to seven properties they own, um, typically, you know, and I'm, and I'm making up numbers here, but they'll be close. You know, we have 10 super strong buyers in any market. We know we can go to it any time. You know, these are our 10 guys. And, and there's many more, but I'm just trying to make a point here. And out of the 10 that we knew would be aggressive, that knew they would buy it, the perfect bolt-on, whatever reason it is, out of the 10, I probably see two active today. So, I mean, it's there's been a huge slowdown in, in buying activity. And even people making offers, as you mentioned, and you're still making them, keep making them. Um, and let's take it one step further. You know, on the larger, more institutional space, private equity space, um, I would say out of every 10 buyers, we see four still writing offers, but we're hearing a lot of people right now say pencils down, pencils down. And it's because I just got back from a conference, which you were at, which was NTC. And the one thing I heard from a really good buyer is the problem is our offer today changes tomorrow, right? I mean, it just changes based upon what happens in the, in, you know, with the 10 year, what happens with debt or how you want to look at it. So that's the issue is, you know, a lot of these groups have very strong reputations for making an offer, sticking with the offer, not retrading. But the reality is, is a lot of this is out of their control. Right. So, um, you know, it's it's tough out there. And I think my personal opinion on this, Ferg, is that we need to see some type of sign from the feds saying that we're going to slow down or pause interest rate increases or hikes because, um once we see that, then I think it'll build a little bit more confidence because we just don't know where it's going and where it continues to grow because there is a huge spike. I mean, that spike was detrimental to many people. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that once they say that they've hit the top or somewhere around the top, I think some confidence will come back. But then also, too, I mean, the reality is we're in a recession, if not going to be in a recession at the time. So we think I'm hearing from other people. We think we're going to see interest rates stabilize, and then we're going to see a pullback. But you know, you never really know. But that's the sentiment I'm getting out there: is that we're going to head into a recession, and you know, we're going to see some pullback. And that, in my opinion, that doesn't mean back to four percent, but probably means we get to seven and a half. That may mean six, five and a half, maybe that range. So we'll see. But we need the confidence back, and the Fed isn't going to continue to raise raise interest rates. Um, what I like to do is, is I I pulled this up here. I actually worked on this yesterday, Ferd, and it, it goes to your point. Can I share my screen here? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Um, so what I'm getting ready to show you, and let me pull it up here, is I actually put this together yesterday, and it was ironic that we were talking about this, but you know, I was trying to really understand in my mind and, and being able to have something that I could give to investors and buyers and sellers and so forth. Can you can see my screen, right? Yes. Okay. So this is an actual real deal. I mean, this is this is a deal that we did, and I took the exact same numbers. So we sold this deal at the beginning of the year at a four, um, sorry, at four point five million. At that time, debt was at four and a quarter, and and what we measure to here, just so everyone knows, but this is more of a, a, a looking at debt tool and how debt affects things. 
But most banks and lenders are going to write to a 1.25 debt service coverage. It may be a 1.3, but we're using 1.25 in this example, which is very common. So what I did is I showed that if you keep things relative, income, expenses, NOI, and you adjust that interest rate to six, but you keep the debt service coverage the same, there's a decrease of $9,000 per unit, and it goes from four five to 3.7 million. These are essentially the same values looking at debt service coverage or where we are today. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty big change. That's a $1,000 change in value. So then what I did is I said, okay, well, let's 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 keep the debt the same. And, and again, I'm using 70% six, which we're at today in that range is four and a quarter. But I said, if we keep it all the same and then let's look out into the future a little bit and go, how much of a rent increase would it take to get to this four or five number in today's environment? That would be a $60 rent increase on 88 lots. That would be a 16% top line growth in, in income and then an 8% growth in expenses. So, you know, my point is, is there's a lot of heavy lifting here to get to the yeah. same value. So, you know, for me to see it visually, it makes a lot more sense than me to hear it. So that's why I was working on this so I could show my guys. No, I mean, I get it. It's, it's a great point that, I mean, that's where I, mean, I was telling some people at the conference, I met with a couple of other brokers looking at a couple of deals and the price was still, you know, in the five caps. And I was like, you want me to pay yesterday's cap rates, but with today's interest rates, I can't do it. I said, the only way that works is if I can convince the bank to lower their rates to yesterday's pricing. I'm not that smooth a talker. I'm not going to convince the bank of that. Or if you guys as the seller, if you guys sell or finance it at yesterday's rates, you want to give me a 4% interest rate at 80% LTV. I can pay the same cap rate I used to be able to pay, but I can't pay the same cap rate today or you know, it wouldn't be responsible. And I can't get the same leverage. So, I mean, I'm looking with, with, with so of course they don't want to sell our finance. So when I take it to the bank, the, you know, the real bank, they're like, well, based on the new interest rate, we're going to give you 60% LTV instead of 75 or 80. Well, like, well, if I've got 60% LTV, clearly that's going to require more equity. Well, that means my re return on equity is going to be diluted because I've got the same old NOI, same old cash flow after debt. You know, there's more cash flow for debt service because debt's less, but generally, generally same old NOI and equity costs more than debt. I'm going to have a, a lower yield, which means I need to either A, give take a smaller piece as a GP or B, push rents, push NOI harder than I always would like, which creates risk because there's no pushing rents too hard you know, could lead to future vacancy, could lead to turnover, could lead to all, you know, me getting stabbed, you know, all kinds of problems. Right? So, um, I don't want to change the business plan because I can't get the same level, same type of loan. So I got to change the price, but that means I'm going to have less deal volume. Yeah. Now, listen, I, I think that um, you kind of hit on it earlier. We are on the brokerage side. We actually have a few deals that just went under contract with the seller's had no interest in holding paper and then they agreed to hold paper. And, you know, I think when you lay it out for a seller properly and show them that over a five or seven year period, you can make an additional 800,000 a million to 
whatever it is. I mean, they don't really know what to do with their money right now. That's the biggest question we get asked. What am I doing with my money? Well, I mean, I think holding paper is a great solution. And we're seeing that happen more often than not. Um, how, do you, so, how do you how do you overcome them? I get holding paper is a good solution. So you can hold paper at, say, 6% instead of having to trade into something that perhaps four. Obviously, when you're holding paper, you don't have leverage. Like if you, if you, you know, buy into something at, you know, 4% cap rate, but you get 75% debt, you can perhaps distort your yield. Um, what about the tax hit? Are they not worried about that? I mean, they have a capital gain tax. Obviously, uh, if you're taking the money over years, you can defer the timing of some of that gain. But are they, is it neutering their ability to do a 1031 or are they still able to do based on the amounts that are being hit? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I would say the majority of the time when I see people willing to hold paper, they're usually older. They don't want to 1031. They're not going to 1031 anyway, right? They just, they just okay. want to get it. And a lot of them don't want to pay their taxes. I get it. Um, but if they are going to do something and they are going to pay taxes and they are going to get yesterday's number or close to yesterday's number at an interest rate that was yesterday. I mean, the, the deals I see happening right now, there's one deal, um, the seller's holding paper at a four and a half percent interest rate, interest only for five years. Wow. On another deal, it's 5% interest only for seven years. And I would cautious anyone by doing less than five years, make your own decisions, but the shorter time period, the less time you have to react to market conditions and doing what you need to do to get your value up. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's definitely better than the bank at, you know, on, on one deal that would take bridge debt, we got quoted 9% on that deal where the owner is going to hold paper at four and a half. I mean, it's a no brainer. I mean, you know, cause the, the, there's the meat on the bones there. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 so it's the older clientele generally that we see, um, willing to hold paper cause they don't really, they don't want to go operate and own anything else. Yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty good option. Then, if you're not going to 1031, then you can delay some of your gain on the year that the money's received. And if you can get a, you know, quote guaranteed interest, or you know, and or your collateral is the property that you used to own that you know, if you got to take it back, you know how to run it. Hopefully, they don't run it into the ground in the meantime. But um, I, I I see more of those deals going. Um, I'm even seeing them on wholesale deals, which is kind of crazy because they're not even your seller financing a guy you haven't met yet. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I was at dinner at the conference with a with a group, a big operator, and they said they had four deals go out that week, four offers go out, and all four were seller carry. And they, yeah. they said we think well, we're not sure we're gonna get them all accepted, maybe none of them, but that's how they're all going out. I was yeah, I was really surprised to hear that. Yeah, shots on goal because the reality is is if you're a seller. And again, you're getting offers. Let's just make up a number of three in today's environment with lending. But then you can get three six because they're going to hold paper. I mean, the three six is a lot more attractive and they get the bump at the end along with the cash flow. So, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to ask, um, especially in today's environment, because. Though some of them really don't understand the dynamics of debt service coverage and how it affects things. They, they all understand that money is more expensive and it costs more money today to buy a deal. So therefore you got to pay less. So they, they can fundamentally wrap their head around that. Yeah. So let me, um, let me show you something else here. I'm going to share my screen one more time. So this kind of cool. I'm a data junkie. So, um, so we track, so this is, and this is through just so you know, the beginning of October. Um, I have this updated on the 20th of every month. 
um, typically. So I have this through last month. But here you can see we track vol we took like the number of properties sold by state and the volume. We track um, volume by buyer, and I, I hit these because I, I hit them on purpose. But we track who's buying. Um, you know, so if I just if I take one of these to show you guys, I mean, you know, this group here, Bovita Group, just for example purposes, I hit it. That you know, we're tracking them on eight deals, and then we. We follow the brokerage community and how much they sold. And then we also track it by month. So you can see here 61, 34, 50, 62, 62, 62, 39 a drop. That's when things started to get a little wobbly. 43, 29. Now in October, I did look before the call. There were 45 transactions that we tracked in in um October. The 15 was bought by one group and 14, four by another group. So that was 20 by two groups, which may be in the other as well. But, you know, you can see that, you know, it is a little bit of a laggard. We do see some pullback from the 60s and 50s. We haven't hit that since July. Interesting. Yeah. So, so this is not this is not just your broker, just as all brokers or all, all deals that you're you, you're available to this public information, basically. That's well, it's not public information. It's a it's what we subscribe to where we actually are able to pull data from. We have three different sources that we use and, and on top of our knowledge and what we pull, I mean, we track it as well. Some of them don't track what we track, but um, you know, this is a mix of two of them. Um, and then we put in our database at the end of the year for the final. So, but we, we just, we really track this. I mean, this, this really helps us understand what's going on in the market, but you know, it is a laggard. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if November is, 30 and December's 15, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's the trend we're going to see. Now, next year, when people have new powder and a new plan and they're hungry and, you know, we, we may see it pick back up. But I think all of us are looking for some sort of assurance from the Fed that interest rates aren't going to continue to go through the roof or be hiked. So, yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. Let's um let's talk about one more thing that I think is important. Um, because I know that you have a lot of guys on here that that buy parks and own parks and so forth. And you know, we we're in the industry, we're getting a lot of a lot of um pushback and a lot of negativity towards lot rent increases. And sure. you know, I think that part of it's true. Um, you know, part of it I think is is I don't know what the word is is too much and then there are times where too much really isn't too much so you know I'm, I'm gonna give you an example there, there's a group out there that just gets torn apart at times for their rent increases but i do know that when they do buy a park and they bought a, they buy a lot of value add parks when they do buy a park typically they buy a lot of parks from owners that have owned the parks for a long time and they're just in disrepair the infrastructure is in disrepair you know, the water's not good, the sewer's not good, the electric pedestals are bad, the roads are bad, there's no signage, there's no grass. I mean, so when they go and buy these parks and they spend a lot of money on paving and infrastructure and so forth, they do have to do larger rent increases. And I think that's justifiable because they are taking a community that was essentially falling apart and people live there because they had no place to go. It's not like you want them to go somewhere, but no one else wants to live there because it's so bad. So, you know, it's that, you know, you got to go in there and fix it if that's what you choose to do. And, and that's where a lot of these big rent increases come into play. Now, 
With that being said, I wanted to touch on expenses. You know, with inflation and all the things going on in the world today, as buyers are out there, owners are out there, you know, I think right now is a very important time to really understand the numbers. So, uh, you know, in Florida, for example, I'm pretty positive taxes are going up 10% to 13% every year because they can increase it by 10. And then you have the school board, which goes from market value instead of assess. That's where the other three comes in. But my point is, is taxes are going up. This is how municipalities fund their budgets. So they're going up. So you got to underwrite tax increases, tax increases on a sale. These are all important. Insurance. Insurance is going up. Um, if you have park-owned homes, your liability insurance for the park-owned homes, it's going up dramatically because of fires and because of slip and falls. So just be cognizant of those increases. Water and sewer going up, not 3%, 6-7%. Electric, labor. So, you know, the old fundamentals of top line will increase by X, you know, expenses will increase by 3% across the board. Be careful. Don't get caught because expenses are increasing more than 3%. So my point is, is just, you know, make sure you dig in, you understand numbers, understand where they're going as you're pro forma and this stuff out because, um, you know, expenses are also leading to larger rent increases because if, you know, electric's up $4, water and sewer's up $4, I'm making this up, taxes up $10, and insurance up too, that's $20. So your increases on your expenses before you make a dollar, $20. So you increase by 20, your NOI could go down, if not stay even, have to increase more than that. So larger rent increases may be coming and still coming because of all the inflation or the expenses increasing so dramatically. So pay attention to that, it's important. No, I think you're right. I think I'm seeing more and more large increases. I think it's a slippery slope as far as worried. You know, you don't want to get wreck control. You don't want to hurt the ability to infill lots and sell homes because price because new home prices are way up too. So it's like it's harder. I mean, I had the manufacturers. I had two of them call me last week and say, "Hey, you need any more homes?" And I was because sometimes they call me when they're like, "Hey, we got to run a ten and we only had nine filled. You, I got a three month backlog, but I can get you one." I'm like, "Sure, I'll take the one." And, but it's been three, it's been six, it's been 12 month backlog. One year, they wouldn't even give me any homes. Even though I, I'm like, I bought 40 homes from you last year. They're like, I know, I know. We, have got, we have guys that buy a, a hundred at a time. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm not that big a deal. So they, they, they blew me off. Well, the same guy calls me last week and says, you need homes. And I said, what well, do you have like one extra run? He goes, no, we just, we're running out of orders. So we're making yeah. calls and I'm like, wow. Not, not, they're they're worried about having a downshift and it's like okay and that's because and i bought like 12 of them from them like 60 days ago but I was, i'm still setting those and installing those and so i'm like i don't need any more right now i was like the and they're harder to sell because the price is so much higher so it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna put higher lot rent and higher home costs you're pushing the rents and part of the value proposition for our customers is is for the same square footage and the same quality were much cheaper than apartments. So why would you go to apartment? But the more that the home prices go up and the more the lot rent goes up, the harder that that gap is, is going to be to fill because it's going to be, you know, a tougher, tougher value proposition. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I got the same call two weeks ago from a group that we bought, I think 59 homes from over a two year period. And they literally said no more orders 
to any other than our dealerships. And I, I found out that wasn't true. They were back in some larger owners. It is what it is. But, you know, they are kind of calling now, begging to give orders. And, you know, I'm like, well, you forgot about me before. But, you know, it, 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 the market changes. Look, it's I'm not going to hold anyone hostage over that. But, you know, I just said, I want you to remember next time I need something. And, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm a small guy. I'm a small player, but I'm consistent. I'm consistently small. So um, <laughs> be there. So, um, I, yeah. And and I have seen for a little bit of pricing coming down on the homes, actually. Um, you know, I, I've seen a little bit of pullback on the home pricing, which is great. But, you know, here's where I think and, and I'll touch on this. Here's where I think the distress is coming is that a year ago you couldn't get homes for nine months. I mean, and then throughout the majority of this year, you couldn't get homes for nine months. Well, I think the guys that went out there and bought parts over the past two to three years and didn't execute on their game plan, didn't get homes in in time, were on a you know a three-year short-term loan, bridge loan. I think those are the guys that we're going to see that ultimately are going to be in the herd bag or they got to sell because they're not going to be able to refi where they thought they were going to refi because they didn't meet their hurdles on getting homes in. They didn't meet their CapEx improvements. Um, and, and banks now are being much more critical and money is much more expensive. So, you know, we're going to see a lot of those groups that didn't execute. I think that's where we see the distress coming from. I don't know if it's necessarily distress or they just aren't going to make a lot of money, but it could be either one. No, I agree. I mean, I've seen it happen where, you know, the business plan required, you know, I'm going to fill 25 homes a year for three years. And then the first year they got zero. It wasn't, wasn't, their, wasn't their fault even. But yeah. They got zero. Like, you can't make that up very easily. And then, and then you've got to make it up and then you got to pay 20% more. Yeah. It's going to slow. It's going to be hard to make that up the next year. So, I mean, I, I've seen some, you know, a lot of times with my clients, they want, they say, just do the paperwork. Sometimes they just do the syndication. Sometimes they say, just do the zoning. Sometimes they say, look at our business plan and give me your opinion. Um, so then I will, but sometimes I'll look at the business plan and I remember one time I did give them my opinion. They didn't want it. I said, they were, I said, I'm 15 years older than you. I got more experience than you. I got more money than you. I'm smarter than you. And I can't get that loan. So how are you going to get that 80% cash out refi 120 days in based on your immediate $750 increase? And you're going to take all the cash out, pay your investors off. And that was just like, look, guys, I'm just trying to be honest that this is a failing business plan and you can't, which bank, if you, cause you, when you, if you find them, let me know. Cause I'm switching all my business to this bank yeah, until yeah. they go out, of, at least until they go out of business, <laughs> make a loan. Yeah. Like right. So anyway, I see, I see those performers all the time. And, you know, we, we joking around here all the time that I was telling my analyst the other day, I said in the, in the history of Microsoft Excel, no business plan ended in bankruptcy. But in real, but in real, but in real life, businesses end in bankruptcy on a regular basis. I said, think yeah. about the restaurant business. I said, how many restaurants fail in the first year? Like 50%. And how many fail in the first three years? Like 80%. And I think those 80% are the guys that had the courage, the idea, took a shot, put their blood, sweat, and tears in it, and also convinced investors to trust them, convince the landlord to take a risk on them. Maybe some of those landlords put in tenant improvements, convince the bank to make them a loan. And most of them were still wrong and in a bankruptcy. But I can assure you, 
their pro forma model shows them making so much money. It was the best decision sure. of their life. And then sure. not to criticize, I'm not trying to be rude to those guys, but the reality is, is rosy assumptions are not your friend. Yeah. Questioning yeah. assumptions, questioning numbers. That's what I was telling the analysts. I said, as an analyst, I used to be a financial analyst. Your, your job is to question numbers and, and not to be nice to people and, and not to make new friends, but to question numbers and be critical and be analytical. And I feel like that hasn't happened in a lot of respects. And then in COVID, COVID was, a, you know, was and to some degree still is a wild card that nobody was ready for. Um, overall, our industry fared better than most. I'm, I'm glad I was in this business, not the restaurant business. Because there, there are good restaurateurs that got hit in the shorts, even though they didn't do anything wrong. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's where you're right. That the stress is coming when perfect storm of aggressive underwriting, inexperience, crazy macroeconomic factors from a supply chain, crazy macroeconomic factors from an interest rate and cap rate standpoint, with a short-term loan with an aggressive fee structure of a syndicator and it's all going to, the timing may not be long enough to get them out of hock. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And it's, um, you know, when it's, um, you know, I've, I've met with a lot of them over the past, a bunch of owners over the past month and a half. And, you know, it's, I can, I can feel some of them worried, but, you know, I, look, I want the best for them. I, you know, it's, I want them to prosper and do well. And I want that for everyone, but you know, some of this stuff you couldn't even predict. I mean, who would have predicted? You know, it's, it's, right. you know, I mean, literally when they turned off that valve saying nine months to get a mobile home, I mean, that valve turned off in like a month and a half with all of them. I mean, it wasn't like any of us saw it coming because I was still placing orders. I needed 18 more homes. I remember at the time, and I had my COO call and say, let's order 10 more homes. And she goes, they're not taking any more orders. I'm like, what? Like, what do you mean? So yeah. I'm like, well, call call the other company. She's like, they're nine months out. I'm like, no, call the other company. So right? like, I'm like, what? Call the other company. And then I'm like, oh my God. So then I started asking and everyone's like, yeah, this is, you know, this is coming at us. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So they didn't expect that. You know what I mean? And now interest rates, I mean, I don't think any of us would have thought interest. I mean, look, we, I think we all knew interest rates were going to increase, but you know, I think, um, and I won't get into the my thoughts on that, but I think for several reasons, increased interest rates increased as fast as they did, just because they, they meant to do it before and they just didn't do it. So, and then when they all got back into session, we all got the brunt of it very fast. So, yeah, it's but been interesting, a wild, it's interesting been a wild couple years, right? Wild yeah, couple years. Yeah. All right, man. Well, this is good stuff. Any other tips or tricks or ideas you want to share before we jump? No, I mean, I would just say, look, it's a great business. Um, it's always going to be a great business. You know, take care of your people, um, run your properties the best that you can. Um, if you're thinking about selling anytime soon, get prepared with your books. I mean, there are certain things you need to be doing with your records and your books. I can't tell you how many times we get on the broker side, we get bad data or, you know, they're, they're renting, they have a park-owned home and their lot rent and their park-owned home rents combined. And, you know, you really want to set, there's certain things you want to separate it. There's certain things that you want to do in order to get prepared to sell or even to run it. I mean, listen, I, I mean, I'm of the opinion, if you have park-owned home, you need another entity, get them out of your main entity. You don't want the liability. So there's certain things out there that, um, you know, you need to do and you need to be aware of. And listen, um, you know, 
I'm here as a resource and my team's here as a resource and you know anyone can contact me anytime and and I'll do my best I can to help you you know that that makes me happy so yeah all right stuff man appreciate it you yeah thank you thank you for having me on and everyone have a great year and and, and good luck and for I'll I'll see you soon all right sounds good all right man have a good day too You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.